Hello, and before I start this week's episode, just a quick note to thank the photographer who created the image on the podcast cover art. That's Sora Shimazaki at Pexels. Also, if you'd rather read this podcast, the transfer the transcript is available as a Kindle ebook with clickable links to all the references. Just search Financial Crime Weekly in the Kindle store, scroll past the sponsored links, and there you go. Now, let's get started. Hello and welcome to This Week in Financial Crime. I'm your host, Chris Kirkbride. It's been another busy one this week, so best crack on with our roundup of all things financial crime. This week we'll look at sanctions, obviously, once again, top the list of stories with more action being taken globally following the Russian invasion of Ukraine. There's also news this week of a new data iron curtain. There's some information on corruption resolution and investigations in the US and Europe. The PRA, the Prudential Regulation Authority in the United Kingdom, has released its 2022-23 business plan and the Financial Action Task Force has been reflecting on its work. Now let's crack on and start with Russian sanctions. Well, where else would we start? Uh, They've been prominent in the mainstream media for two months since the Russian invasion of Ukraine, although there seems to be a trend in that what started as a deluge has now become a trickle. This is understandable. Russian financial services and, to a large extent, goods and services have been hit with a range of sanctions. Additionally, individuals hit with sanctions is such a lengthy list that the only people left to be sanctioned must be Putin's second cousins twice removed. Let's start with the UK. The Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office, the FCDO in the UK, has announced a new raft of sanctions against individuals linked to the regime of Vladimir Putin and certain oligarchs. On the 14th of April, it was announced that Eugene Tenenbaum and David Davidovich had been sanctioned for dealings with Irvington Investments Limited, Irvington. Now, that's an investment company linked to Roman Abramovich, the owner, at least for the time being, of Chelsea Football Club. On 24th February, Tenenbaum, also a director of Chelsea Football Club, assumed control of Irvington. Then in March this year, Davidovich took control of Irvington from Tenenbaum. The game of pass the parcel with Irvington at least ends with these sanctions, estimated to be worth over £10 billion. The sanctions against Tenenbaum and Davidovich brings the number of individuals sanctioned by the United Kingdom to 106 since the start of the invasion of Ukraine. The full list of individuals sanctioned by the UK, not limited to those concerned with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, is available on the Offsea website. Now, this bit's going to be tricky. (laughs) Some interesting names in this next section. In addition, the UK has uh, reacted with further sanctions on military personnel alleged to have committed atrocities, even war crimes, in the besieged port city of Mariupol and the northern Ukrainian city of Busha. Or Bucha. Uh, we noted in last week's podcast the atrocities committed in Bucha, uh, but over recent weeks Russian attacks on Mariupol have intensified as forces loyal to Putin sought to take the city after a laboured battle in which the Ukrainian forces held out against wave after wave of attack. Those sanctioned in the latest round are uh, Lieutenant Colonel Azatbek Omurbakov, a commanding officer in the Russian army, Colonel General Andrei Serdyukov, who is commander of airborne forces, Major General Valery Flyustikov, who is commander of special operations forces, and Colonel General Nikolai 
Bogdanovsky, first deputy chief of the general staff. In addition, those supporting the logistics effort, since an army marches on its stomach, have also been sanctioned. This includes Oleg Belazurov, chair and CEO of the Russian Railways. Uh, there are many more, and the full list is available in the press notice issued by the FCDO. In light of these changes, the FCDO has also updated all its Russian sanctions guidance. Away from state actions on sanctions, the impact on the operations of professional services firms is manifest this week as the Law Society published Sanctions and Russia Answering Your Questions, which is guidance for firms in the form of Q&As on what to do when dealing with individuals or entities which may be subject to sanction. It poses and answers such gems as do UK sanctions only apply to work that falls within the scope of AML regulations, of course AML anti-money laundering regulations, and how do I contact OFSI and keep up to date with changes to the sanctions list? Now, the cynic in me might think some of this is a little obvious, especially the provision of a phone number for OFSI. But I suppose some firms are unfamiliar with sanctions because they have been unaffected in the past, but they now face contact with them because of the extensive nature of these sanctions. Let's move away from the UK, turn to the European Union now. The Council of the European Union has adopted the recommendation on conversion of the Ukrainian currency. The scheme, which we actually discussed in last week's Financial Crime Weekly podcast, allows all displaced Ukrainians, including children, to exchange up to 10,000 hovinias, which is the Russian, uh, sorry, it's not, it's the Ukrainian currency, uh, uh, up to 10,000 hovinias, which is about 310 euros per person. And finally this week, off uh, over to the US. In the US, the Office of Foreign Assets Control, OFAC, has made further sanctions designations against over 40 individuals and entities believed to be concerned in the facilitation of Russian sanctions evasion, including companies involved in virtual currency mining, notably among the BitRiver. And it's the first time OFAC has made such a designation. Now... This next story is not one I, I was really going to cover in any depth at all, but I was kind of driven to it after announcements made this week by the Russian story, uh, by Russian authorities. Anyway, uh, something of a data iron curtain has been dropped by the Russian authorities. What they've done is they've stopped publishing information on government debt, trading data and oil production. Now, the decision is an important one in the information war, which of course runs parallel to the actual war on the ground. This is important for the Russian state since it has to manage the narrative around the effect of sanctions, especially as Putin came out this week to say that Western sanctions are failing to have the desired impact. Well, frankly, that was the bit I didn't really want to make part of this week's podcast. Putin's statement was not something I had planned to cover, but the decision of the Russian authorities has kind of given grist to this noble lie. The sanctions will damage the Russian economy and are already damaging the Russian economy. It's merely the case that it will now be more difficult to monitor the extent to which it is being damaged. Away from sanctions now, that's probably enough for this week. They'll be back next week, I've no doubt about it. We look at some corruption stories. So Stericycle 
um, which is a, a US firm involved in medical services provision, has uh, agreed to pay $84 million to settle a series of criminal and civil charges for breaches of the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, 1977. The charges relate to bribes paid following its, following its expansion into Central and South America. Employees were alleged to have maintained the smoking gun, or at least smoking spreadsheet, of a list of bribes paid, together with false invoices and allied compromised internal auditing, all of which will be offences under the FCPA, the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. There's a, a bit of personal pleasure I take from this story, actually, uh, because there's something in the press release noting the rapid expansion of Stericycle Inc. in these new markets in Central and Southern America. I frequently used exam problem scenarios where a company entering a foreign marketplace uh, would obtain a foothold and a decent market share after only a relatively short period of time. Ambiguous payments associated with the development of business would indicate possible bribery and corruption in order to achieve that market position. It's kind of nice to feel vindicated and also that fiction can reflect reality. A final story on corruption this week, uh, and that is that the Spanish authorities have announced that they're investigating the awards of contracts to companies uh, which were made during the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, these contracts are alleged to have been linked to government ministers. Allegations of corruption linked to government ministers and COVID-19 contracts have been made across the globe, and the United Kingdom has had its own problems in that regard, with allegations made about um, a fast tracking of uh, suppliers linked to donations to the governing party. Now, while the action of the Spanish authorities is to be welcomed, in fact, any investigation into alleged corruption is to be welcomed wherever it is, we can only hope that those governments which have been less than keen to investigate corruption kind of sit up and take a bit of notice of the moral lead that seems to be taking, taken by the Spanish authorities. Now, cybersecurity. The UK government has announced the second wave of its cybersecurity longitudinal survey. Large and medium-sized businesses, together with high-income charities, are asked to respond to the survey with information on their approach to cybersecurity and the risks which they face. The importance of the response is measured in the fact that they will inform government policy on cybersecurity. This could not be more relevant at the moment because of the persistent warnings of cyber attacks following the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Wave 1 of the survey took place in 2021, while the second wave takes place this month up until June 2022. Uh, the link to the survey can be found on the UK government website, and the findings of the first wave stage of the survey can also be found there. Well worth looking at if you are engaged in any way in fighting cybersecurity, and frankly, who isn't? In other news this week, the Prudential Regulation Authority has announced its business plan for 2023. Hot on the heels of the FCA's publication of its business plan, the PRA has produced its own business plan. Now, reflecting its position as the Prudential Regulator, the business plan is more of a kind of strategic overview. The plan commits to four strategic goals for the PRA. 
First of all, to retain and build on the strength of the banking and insurance sectors delivered by the financial crisis reform, to be at the forefront of identifying new and emerging risks and developing international policy, uh, to support competitive and dynamic markets, and to run an inclusive, efficient and modern regulator within the central bank. While these bear little relation, at least superficially, to financial crime, if you drill into some of them, particularly the desire to be at the forefront of the identification of new and emerging risks and developing international policy, it's easy to see that there are some takeaways for those operating in financial crime. First, the financial the, the, pl the plan notes that c the continued threat which is posed by the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and of course we're all aware of the persistent threat of cyber attacks and indeed cyber attacks which have alleged to have taken place sourced from Russia. Uh, this, the plan states, see, uh, actually caused the PRA to reprioritize its work on the safety and soundness of regulated firms with heightened levels of firm engagement and monitoring to ensure a proportionate response. Uh, secondly, the plan notes the increase in digitization and machine learning and artificial intelligence as being issues which it will monitor in the coming year, especially since digitization poses a cybersecurity risk. Therefore, the PRA will continue to use its risk penetration mechanism, CBEST, which was something flagged in last week's Financial Crime Weekly, as well as other tools at its disposal. The commitment to assess cyber risk and firms' resilience to it is amplified in the foreword to the plan by the Chief Executive Sam Wood. One final point about the plan is that the PRA plans to start its stress testing of the insurance sector in May 2022 uh, with uh, general and life insurers. It will focus on the general res resilience of such firms, but specifically on cyber event vulnerabilities. Now, we end this week's podcast by looking at a fairly active week for the Financial Action Task Force, the FATF. On the 21st of April, the FATF's 37 member states, together with others, or ministers of the FATF's 37 member states, together with others, met to consider various aspects of the FATF's role in global anti-money laundering and its societal impact. Uh, focusing particularly on the FAT's recent report, which was published this month, on the state of effectiveness and compliance with FATF standards. Now, in the document, the ministers reaffirmed their commitment to tackle all sources, techniques and channels for money laundering, terrorist financing and proliferation financing, as well as reflecting on the serious impact which corruption can have on the economy and society. To this end, they committed to implementation of the United Nations Convention Against Corruption. Further, that while recognising success in combating global anti-money laundering, the ministers noted that there remained work to be done in some countries with respect to combating money laundering, terrorist financing and proliferation financing. In addition to committing to improve these areas across certain countries, the ministers committed to strengthening the global network, which consists of the FATF and nine FATF-style regional bodies. This is a collaborative platform of over 200 governments and 20 international observer organisations. 
Further, the ministers agreed to enhance international beneficial ownership transparency, something considered in last week's Financial Crime Weekly from the UK's perspective in the IMF reports published a couple of weeks ago. Uh, They also considered increasing the effective recovery of criminal assets, something which is important across jurisdictions. Other more minor matters were considered, and they can be viewed in the declaration on the FATF website. I want to finish this discussion, however, by dealing with probably the most famous aspect of the work which is done by the FATF, namely uh, its mutual evaluations. Now, the declaration labelled these this week the bedrock of the FATF's mandate, and I think that's probably about right. The mutual evaluations are central to the work of the FATF and what they do is they really highlight vulnerabilities within individual nation states in respect of money laundering and the threat which it poses. The mutual evaluations currently take place every 10 years but in its State of Effectiveness and Compliance with FATF Standards report, that was the one that was published this month, The FATF has agreed to shorten the cycle in which these mutual evaluations take place to a six-year cycle. In the declaration, the ministers ministers welcomed this reduction together with the adoption of the revised methodology, which they said will achieve more timely assessments with a stronger focus on risk in the next round of mutual evaluations. This is a good thing and broadly to be welcomed. However, Time will certainly tell if this is capable of being achieved, especially given the delays and cancellations which have been associated with the current cycle of mutual evaluations. Well, that's it for this week's Financial Crime Weekly podcast. Thanks for taking the time to listen, and please don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast. All being well, I'll be back next week.